Hello and welcome to another episode of the Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm here at our cozy yet airy Boston Public Library studio with two of my colleagues, Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey, great to be here. Uh, Peter, by the way, is, uh, what, what's the title? Web Editor, Senior Editor Emeritus at Large? <laughs> Web Eminence? That. Okay. And, and Mike <laughs> Dean, like our yeah. State House reporter, Mike, hello. How are you? I don't have any kind of eminence to speak of, but I am cozy. You, oh, that's, you, you are eminent in your field. So <laughs> you guys were both at Marty Walsh's State of the City speech last night. I wasn't. Uh, I was off covering a Joe Kennedy appearance in Newton, where he talked with a bunch of grumpy Democratic activists. In Newton? Uh, in Newton, of all places. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> think. So I watched the mayor's speech on uh, YouTube this afternoon. And I know it's really different when you watch it live versus watching it on, on tape. But two things struck me. First off, I had the feeling that the whole speech was a sort of passive-aggressive rejoinder to uh, his new opponent, Tito Jackson's claim that Mayor Walsh is privileging certain parts of the city over other parts, specifically downtown over the neighborhoods. And then the other thing that struck me is I felt like it was kind of a sleepy speech going along, 10-minute mark, 20-minute mark, 25-minute mark. And then all of a sudden, right around the half-hour mark, as the mayor wrapped up, there was this thunderous crescendo and massive applause from the audience, which kind of made me sit up in my seat. Now, I don't know if that was just dozing off after lunch uh, or if, in fact, I was onto something and the mayor was kind of not really feeling his rhythm or flow for the better part of the speech, and then all of a sudden came on really strong at the end. So there's my take, mediated. Uh, what was it like when you were watching it in person? What stood out to the two of you? Well, I was uh, deep in the, the bowels of the press room watching it on TV, so I probably actually have a more similar experience to you watching it on a screen than being in the hall. Um, Peter was in the hall. I can tell you about that later. My take was it was... Uh half state of the city and half kind of opening salvo of this campaign uh, as far as it being a, a passive-aggressive kind of campaign speech in response to Tito. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I would characterize it quite like that. He did get a question in uh, the availability after the speech where he was asked, is this a response to Councillor Jackson? And in no uncertain terms, uh, Walsh said that it is not, and he does not answer to anyone's, uh, you know, salvos. Uh, do you, do you uh, buy like, that, by the way? I, I, no, I, well, y y y you know, th that's one where I say, uh, I think he doth protest too much. But, but here's why. I didn't really see it as a response to Tito much at all. I, I, I think my p particular view, which might be eccentric, is that uh, Councillor Tito Jackson, who's declared to run against Mayor Walsh and incumbent Mayor Marty Walsh, both have sized each other up. They know each other fairly well. They know each other's game. And um, that I, 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 I think Tito's speech um, was very Tito-esque, if you will, and certainly aimed more at, at, at zinging the mayor. Um, the, the mayor, I think, less so. I, to me, it, it struck me that here he is, his third year, he's pretty comfortable being mayor. You know, no one's ever going to accuse him of being a great public speaker, but he was comfortable in his skin. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an awfully darn impressive setting. You know, you've got a, a hall packed with adoring supporters or respectful uh, peers. Um, I, I thought as those things go, it was, uh, you, you know, Okay, but, but I know that sounds like I'm damning by faint praise, but I thought it was a good performance. By the way, and I, I promise I will get right back to the mayor's speech, um, I'm glad that you mentioned Tito Jackson's speech because 
Yeah, I use the somewhat incendiary adjective passive-aggressive to talk about the state yeah, of the listen, city. Listen, maybe you're right. I, I think mean, Tito Jackson's speech, uh, what, what I was struck by at his kickoff was that he gave this speech basically accusing the mayor of selling huge chunks of the city short. And then when he was asked, are you disappointed in Marty Walsh, you endorsed three years ago, he lacked the courage, I guess, to say, yeah, I'm disappointed in the mayor. I endorsed him, had high hopes for him. Uh, instead, he ended up saying something like, well, this isn't about one person. This is about the city, which to me is odd because he's clearly got a great deal of courage to stick his neck out to run against a popular incumbent who he has very low chance of beating. And yet, when given a chance to uh, take aim at the mayor personally, he took a pass on that. So well, l l l let me just, uh, a quick point there. Let me play political consultant. I think it's way too early for either of them to start going negative on each other, and I, I think that's why. I, I think implicit in both messages, in Tito's message was th there's a crying need for Tito to run, and for Mayor Walsh there's a crying need for him to show Boston what a great job he's done. And um, to me it's more an issue of pacing. Uh, okay. Yeah, I would say that the aggression that the mayor showed yesterday was uh, really in the policy that he recommended. Um, a lot of this has to go through Beacon Hill, and what it is is Walsh is saying that Boston needs to get its fair share. It needs to get its cut uh, of these resources of education. He's saying that the way the state de deals out education funding to municipalities is wrong, and Boston gets you know the short end of that. He's saying that the uh, convention center authority has a uh, surplus all the time, and Boston needs its share of that to pay for pre-K. Uh, those are bold moves that need to go through uh, you know, the, the state coffers to come back to the city. Um, but yeah, there was aggressive policy suggestions. And, if I may add, those are moves that will generate headlines so that even if he's not successful, and, and that is not a prediction yeah. at all, even if he's not successful, he will be successful in fighting for the city of Boston. This is the power of incumbency and, you know, increasing his profile within the statewide Democratic Party as a result of that. And he said all these things with Governor Charlie Baker and various other Beacon Hill bigwigs sitting in the audience looking on. Mike, is he right that Boston gets shortchanged the way education money is doled out on Beacon Hill? His argument is that the, uh, the way the state uh, pays for education funding right now, which is called Chapter 70, is um, it's, it's hard to explain in, in podcast terms. By the way, it's about I, I, 25 I, years old. Uh, it isn't really set up. The mayor would argue that urban school districts that have a higher uh, percentage of uh, either underperforming or special needs or really just like a racial gap in the education system uh, suffer more than the suburban and rural schools that kind of also have the same formula funding. He's saying that we need to go back to the drawing board and uh, revamp that so that Boston will get its fair share for the student body that it has. And is this, to try to keep it in podcast-friendly terms, is, is the <laughs> unfair allocation predicated on the idea that urban school districts face a bigger proportion of really tough, challenging cases that cost a lot of money to educate so that it's harder to educate a lot of kids in the Boston public schools than it is, say, to, to educate um, 
the tough cases in Duxbury or somewhere yeah, like in, that. In a, in a nutshell, it's it's about that. It's about the uh, the income discrepancy uh, among the you know, the citizens of Boston and the, their children that go to school here. And you know, transportation challenges within a city are different from transportation. And you know, neighborhood schools in the city obviously have a, a contentious history. Those types of challenges that are unique to urban school districts uh, are what the mayor wants to take on. Yeah. D- d- um Two points. One, I'm going to dust off my, uh, my well-worn hat as a Boston public school parent, and I will say that I do agree that Boston gets the short end of the stick. Um, I also agree that um, uh, statewide urban systems have a unique set of challenges. They're, as the federal government has rolled back, um, Schools carry a disproportionate burden of writing or trying to right society's wrongs. However, capital letters, bold, um, italicized. The mayor never really, not really, only in coded language did he address one of the, the, the most pressing problems Boston schools face, and that is, you know, the the vast excess, the number of empty seats. Um, you know, that that is a multi-million dollar question. I know you've been talking about this. How did he even address it? In well, the it's, I don't, it's in code. This, did, is, this is how I read it. And, um, uh, you know, I have my Russian translation here. He, he says, a simpler set of grade configurations that allow for fewer student transitions in stronger school communities. Now, I'm reading from the, the mayor's um, op-ed piece in the Wednesday, January 19th, Boston Globe, which is Yeah, really, I was going to say, I didn't remember that phrase actually popping no, up no, in the it, it, I, I would recommend anyone trying to understand what the mayor's about um, for education. It's not that the speech was bad. It was a good speech. Uh, read his op-ed, which is very focused. Now, this simpler set of grade configurations, um, and then he talks about building new buildings, and all of this is a veiled way of saying that, well, we'll consolidate, we'll put people in new buildings, and I'm, I'm projecting here, you, you know, at the end of the day, there'll be fewer seats. If I'm wrong then this whole speech was something of a charade because um, uh, I'm saying if I'm wrong, and I don't think I am. I I, I think just as Richard Nixon had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam (laughs) and just as Donald Trump has a secret plan to defeat ISIS, I believe that Marty Walsh thinks he has a secret plan to finesse the... um, you know, the uh, uh, underpopulation of Boston schools. I love it. I love it. <laughs> or is it just, this is going to be a 10-year plan. This is about as ambitious a planning effort as a school district gets, and that hopefully the magic formula, the magic plan will come out of that process. Yeah, you, you know, you, the, the good spin, the positive spin, Mike, would be that you're right. But I have to say, we have to go back to the Menino administration. There's been 15 years, there's very very little that uh, Mayor Walsh spoke of that could not have been addressed 15 years ago. Now, that's not Mayor Walsh's problem. Um, Tom Menino, uh, the late Mayor Tom Menino is a notoriously cautious guy. Um, there was a great hue and cry when they closed a handful of schools. Um, I, I don't think the, the, the mayor ha- has yet had the stomach to... Um, uh, uh, 
face such a firestorm. I think he wants to be, you know, reelected. But to me, this is a big, big thing that it was not in any way addressed. That's why I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say there's a secret plan somewhere to do this. He, he asked he asked Bostonians to um, trust in our shared values. This is from the speech, the prepared speech itself. Uh, when he was talking about you know, better buildings and grade configurations, he says it means changing the status quo. That was the code he used in the speech. And so if, if that means closings, if that means reconfigurations, uh, he's really just scratching the surface of the rhetoric <laughs> that'll get to it. Is there a certain grand plan of or approach to school closures that Peter, as a parent, uh, BPS parent, you think would make sense? for the city? I think any plan would be painful, and it would be painful less physically and more psychologically because you get your kids settled. You you know, um, yes, some people are unhappy with where they are, but, you know, you get to know the teachers for better or for worse. My family's had terrific luck with teachers in the Boston public school system. Not everyone has, but it's a big psychological thing. You know, the school becomes an extension of your kitchen, of your living room. Yeah, you know, that's a good, by the way, I'm not, I live in the the suburbs, which is always a caveat when I talk about Boston city politics, but it really is true since I have two kids in public schools and it becomes the anchor for your entire family. It's that place that you take them to every day. This is like, uh, as you said, what did you say, an ex- your kitchen? Yeah, an extension of the kitchen. You know, the kitchen table, the, the desks at school where the kids, you know, do their schoolwork or the cafeteria yep. table. It's an extension of your kitchen, at least, you know, the, the, the way most of us live. So I don't make light of the problem, but... Menino put it off, and I understand why the mayor appears to be putting it off, but the the longer it's put off, um, I think the more painful it's going to be, especially if our uh, soon-to-be sworn-in President uh, Donald Trump really sticks it to cities with federal funding. And, you know, we all know that's a reasonable proposition. So the mayor talked about changing the way education money is doled out on Beacon Hill. He talked about changing the status quo. <laughs> he talked about changing the status quo when it comes to the city's schools. Uh, he also talked about spending a billion dollars on Boston school buildings. I assume that applies to uh, current buildings and buildings that might be built in the future. And he called for the MBTA to up its game in the city, right? He talked about this jobs line uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Pop in, yeah. You know it, it was interesting. I, I have not heard the mayor really talk about the MBTA all that much. I cover the T meetings every week, and uh, I do not often see people from City Hall there. It's a, it's a state agency. Huh. It's run by the state. Charlie Baker owns it right now. Um, but you know, going into an election year, you, there's a, plenty of vulnerability for people to, on the left to say the mayor of Boston should be the key and foremost advocate for a, a highly functioning MBTA and expanding MBTA things like that. He's mostly agreed with how the governor has kind of tried to change things at the T so far, but he's not been terribly full-throated, or or his uh, lieutenants haven't really been involved in this process that much. Uh, I asked him yesterday after the speech if this means we're going to hear from him more on the MBTA-type matters, and he says that, yeah, he would like to, and he thinks he will uh, as the year goes on. So perhaps... Uh, Marty Walsh has some ideas about the T, specifically what you said about the uh, the Indigo Line. That's the uh, the Re- Reedville uh, commuter rail 
that goes through Dorchester and Roxbury. He says he wants to uh, bring a lot of kind of manufacturing jobs there. There's a lot of industrial space, empty, vacant uh, warehouses, things like that. And he talked about affordable housing, right, uh, yeah. being built along yeah. that yeah. line? Affordable housing and um, kind of industrial kind of mixed use, I guess. I guess that's, that's transit-oriented development is what we call it in, in transportation wonk world. So as we deconstruct Mayor Walsh's speech, I find myself wondering, uh, given how much this was about big ideas that he would need uh, the state's cooperation to implement, I find myself wondering, especially with Charlie Baker running for re-election in a little under two years, and given what a cozy relationship the mayor and the governor have had up until this point, my question is, if the mayor isn't getting responsiveness from the state on these priorities he's articulated, has he reached a point where he would be comfortable challenging the governor publicly to do more to advocate the agenda items that he thinks Beacon Hill should be acting on? Peter Katz's. Well, <clears throat> I think probably. I, I mean, both, uh, both Governor uh, Baker and Mayor Walsh are up for re-election. They're nothing if not political pros. Um, I think they can, you know, beat each other's brains out if they have to um, and, and still behind the scenes remain friends. Um, I don't know if it'll hmm. come to that. Um, Mike, do you buy that? I think so. I think they, they are both politicians. They get it. I think Baker especially understands where... Uh, to work with Democrats, Democrats need to do a certain amount of you know teeth kicking of the Republican governor, and vice versa. Uh, he, you know, the governor has to come down hard on uh, you know things like legislative pay that we're seeing right now. They're just they got, <laughs> they got to keep to their lanes to a certain degree. You, you know, also um, the, the governor may have a silent ally in the Speaker of the House. By the way, I'm I'm making this up as I go along. This is pure conjecture. Well, that's no, what we do here. Right? No, no insight. Well, sometimes we have inside information. The, the secret ally could be that um, uh, speaker, the, the, the Speaker of the House is fiscally conservative. The governor is fiscally conservative. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Speaker might not give the, the governor, you know, uh, public comfort, but privately, you know, he, he may be there keeping his members, hey, 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 look, Boston has a good argument, but we can't bankrupt the state. Again, I'm speaking figuratively. Well, all the policy recommendations that Walsh put forward yesterday align with what the Senate has already pursued, and in some cases passed, much more than what the good House point. has Good point. I haven't That's thought of that. Changes point. to excellent charters, point. changes to Chapter 70. Um, like an expand, you know, Boston using the school building authority differently. These are all things that um, you know, Stan Rosenberg, Senate, and uh, Sonia Chang Diaz, as probably one of the you know, the leading Boston education reformers in the Senate, have already done a lot of work with and thought of, and probably have plans ready to go. Uh, I don't think Walsh is going to you know publicly align himself with the Senate over the House in that tit for tat kind of fight that they've been having. But um, when it comes to what he wants, it's it's the Senate's already already there. See, I, I love it when I learn something on our own podcast. I'm right there with you. Um, can, can you guys tell, and this is, this is a question I'm asking in part because uh, I'm trying to figure out how to take this conversation from our cruising altitude down into a delightful descent. That sounds completely <laughs> bizarre. The, uh, the young listener that people are hearing in the background, uh, maybe the, the youngest that we've had here at the BPL, can you tell if we are upsetting that child or if the child is attempting to join in the conversation? 
the child actually has very strong beliefs on uh, pilot in the city of Boston <laughs> and whether or not nonprofits should be taxed uh, for their, in lieu their of taxes. <laughs> listeners. All right. So, uh, given what the mayor had to say yesterday, and given the way the crowd responded, uh, if you were Tito Jackson listening to the speech. By the way, was Tito Jackson in the hall? Yes, he was. Okay. I didn't see him, but I saw photographs. I, uh, uh, yes. Was he standing and applauding at any points, do we know? Or? Uh, I didn't see that, but I saw him speaking with, I think it was the governor. But no, no, okay. he, he, he was there looking ebullient, energetic. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So if you were him, what, if any, opportunities might you sense in the speech that Walsh gave in the things that he said that didn't quite ring true or the things that he didn't talk about that you feel he should have? A lot of the things that he uh, didn't really explicitly talk about were similar to the criticisms that Jackson had. Um, you know, the mayor, I think, maybe mentioned GE once or twice. He had a passing reference to the fact that we've become a, a hub for corporate headquarters yeah. now. GE, definitely the, the top of that hill. Um, so one of the things that the mayor is proudest of that he included in his speech is that we are now the home of these companies and we're kind of fostering startups and all this stuff. Yeah. And so Plus a zillion shoe companies. A zil- yeah, we're, yeah I, as someone who grew up outside of Brockton, I got a little territorial <laughs> when he said that uh, Boston is now like the shoe capital. The city of shoes. <laughs> city yeah. of shoes. Uh, we'll have to check in with uh, our, our, the, the, the fighting uh, boxers down there. What are they? The city champions. Um, but no, yeah, so he did not really explicitly defend the GE deal. He didn't really bring it up um, as a, a key component. He, he, didn't, he didn't answer Jackson's criticism directly. I don't uh, think, by the way... He probably shouldn't have. You just know? To, you, something you said made me think of this. He also did not talk about income inequality in the city, which is a point that Jackson clearly is going to prioritize the fact that this is becoming a very, very tough city to live in if you are middle or working class. So that's another thing. Peter, does anything spring to mind for you? Well, um, no. I mean, if I were Tito, I, I would say, geez, Mayor, I may agree with what's taking you so long to get to some of these ideas, but I may be reflecting m- my own taxpayer citizen point of view rather than Tito. No, I mean, you can only develop so many themes on a given night. The, the mayor's That's a good point. The mayor's big theme was education with a nod to affordable housing. Um, I, I think GE's a done deal. Those who don't like it will never like it. Um, I think there will be other people who will carry the mayor's water on that. Um, I mean, if, including if the I governor, w- by the way, including the governor, if, if I were. If I were the mayor, I would have said, gee, who? <laughs> you know? um, um, no, I mean, this was, this was focused. This, this was more than anything else education-oriented. All right, last question, letter grade for the mayor. Oh, wow, I'm a little stymied. Um, we uh, can make a, Mike a, I would say A in, ambi- a, a, a in ambition, um, a minus B plus for execution. You know, for me, those are fairly high yeah, those grades. Are pretty high marks. And, and the reason I give them those marks is because there's a lot to talk about in the coming months. This will keep him in the headlines with substantive issues. All right, Mike Dean. I agree. I agree with the substance of it. So I'd say you know uh, a strong B plus A for. Uh, 
you know, the substance of the speech, the performance of it, as you guys were saying before, he kind of had to warm up a bit. And a lot of that was because it was a pretty wonky speech. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, but he communicated that very well. I don't think he lost the audience when he was talking about education reform policy. Um, and then he went for the red meat towards the end there and kind of gave more of a rousing. Our values and our DNA, that kind yeah. of thing. That, those hey, kinds hey, of lines. By the way, there is in the Globe, I'm, I'm coming in here from left field, but in his Globe op-ed, he did say Boston is used to thinking in terms, uh, oh, oh no, he, he talked about a trust gap. And I do think that that's a real issue, that everyone, you know, there aren't as many people around who live through busing. And, the, and, and Boston is now a majority minority city. But there are trust gaps among the electorate. You know, minority communities don't completely trust the white communities. The white communities, you know, wonder what are the minority communities up to. That's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting phrase. I would just add, and this has sort of become a, a, um, an obsession of mine, I think there's also a trust gap in some quarters of the city that Tito Jackson's trying to play to because the Walsh administration with certain big projects will make a decision first and then seek community input later. Couldn't that be the subject of another podcast? I think that's a fine <laughs> idea. All right, why don't we call it a day? Peter Kadzis, thanks for being here. Mike Dean, thanks for coming down to the BPL. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to The Scrum. You can find back episodes on our website, blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. You can also find, I think, old and new episodes on iTunes and on various podcatchers. Uh, again, thanks to Peter Kadzis, Mike Dean. I'm Adam Riley. Our producer is Jason Tureski. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Bye bye. See you. You look so good, fantastic man.